All right, go ahead. The Cult Confessions, Confessions is brought, brought to you by, by the, the generous support, support of our patrons. patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. On the digital airwaves. Constantine turned the Romans Christian, but then the Christian Roman Empire was demolished by barbarian hordes, almost none of whom were Catholic. Some, like the Visigoths, practiced a variant of Christianity called Arianism. Others, like the Lombards and the Anglo-Saxons, were pagan. Why is it, then, that when the dust cleared after the fall of Rome and the consolidation of Europe's various barbarians, Europe was a collection of Catholic Christian kingdoms. The story is a complicated one involving some lucky breaks for the Catholics and clever maneuvering by 6th century Catholic Pope Gregory the Great. In many ways, Gregory was in the right place at the right time. While he maneuvered to convert Europe as quickly as possible on the belief that the end times were near, circumstances outside of his influence also contrived to help him realize his ambitions. The lucky breaks or miraculous interventions came mostly in the form of Catholic queens, who lobbied relentlessly for their husbands to convert. The personal choices of these kings then informed the religious direction of their people, although many preserved at least some of their pagan beliefs after their conversion. Today, we pick up the story of the Christianization of the West with the conversion of the barbarian hordes. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson. Joined and delighted to be joined uh, by James Kaplanges, Captain O the Table. It's great to be back, Rob. It's great to have you back and a surprise guest to us, but not to you all, because you're always expecting this man. That's Johnny Cook, our patron progenitor. Hello. I am supremely outranked right now. <laughs> no. The Hierophant and the Captain. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you're a progenitor, though. I mean, that's kind of serious. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> work my way up the ranks. I was just saying before the show that what the world needs is more shows featuring a bunch of white men. Rob was the only one saying no? that. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> yeah, so maybe. It's about time. Uh, <laughs> we the one members. of a kind. We, we, we the members of the members. secret order, secret order of, of alchemical actors to do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Beautiful. Beautiful stuff. What we do now is we open up the plugs and patrons, gentlemen, by uh, just making some sounds that inspire us. <laughs> That's fine. We are <laughs> going to... Start with our new patrons, uh, patron progenitor. Feel free to celebrate each of these as you as you will. Cosmo Nut, Progenit, Emmett L, Progenate, Tabitha D, Progene, Pledge Bump. Also from Vincent V, Slump, and Kaylee. Wonderful. <laughs> now, now on to our reviewers. Uh, Brian L is sharing his thoughts with us on Castbox and offering plenty of encouragement. If you're listening on Castbox, check out Brian's comments on medieval celibacy. Good stuff, Brian. Uh, and we want to thank you also for your review on Podchaser. On iTunes, we had a very excellent and thorough comment from Greenstone Ryan. From my perspective, says Greenstone, this podcast has been both informative and entertaining. Like anyone's personal understanding, I do not agree with the conclusion or representation all the time, but coming from a listener who has consumed the vast majority of your content, I have thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I wanted to quote that particular part of Ryan's comment there because I, I we are clear here. Uh, I am particularly clear about my take on, on whatever it is I'm presenting uh, as we go through. So much so that at the end, I do Rob's take. And it is very specifically my take. Uh, and, and yes, uh, I, I think Ryan's exactly right. You can take it or leave it. You can have your own take. And you absolutely should. We want uh, listeners tuning in who are critical, uh, critically minded. And uh, we're trying to give you the best research, the best knowledge that we have on the subject. But by all means, uh, reach your own conclusions, friends. I want to encourage everybody to rate us on Spotify, also on iTunes. It's a constant battle on iTunes with people who can't stand us and people who love us. Uh, so so c continue to win the fight over there, dear confessors. Uh, and on Spotify, it's so easy. You just click them stars, feed us those stars. And our love automatically comes to you in the form of... Uh, Sound waves? <laughs> Digital airwaves. Yeah, digital, digital airwaves. In the form of digi continuing digital airwa airwaves. 
Uh, th- this is uh, episode two in year five, by the way, and uh, I want to take just one more moment to reflect on uh, what the podcast uh, has been up to and and, uh, and what it means to me at this stage in our development. It is important to me, as it has been, uh, that we be in the practice of uh, sort of laying out from our unique perspective the theology of the occult uh, that embraces a variety of perspectives, uh, but applies to those perspectives a reason and a logic and a philosophy uh, that is consistent and that uh, holds high standards up to these various ideas. We don't just want to say, here's some crazy paranormal shit and isn't it crazy? We also don't want to say, believe everything that you know we're talking about. We don't often agree with the people that, that we discuss on this show, um, but we do want to be digging deeply into the life of the spirit and uh, how that has been explored on the fringes of religion and culture, and, and even in this case, right down the middle. Uh, so thanks, everybody. Uh, I also want to plug uh, Brianna's episode, uh, bonus episode coming out on, uh, what you call it, them Patreons. So if you haven't joined Patreon yet, pff, there's some serial killer stuff to check out coming up at the end of this month. All right, gentlemen, let's close up the Order of Confessors. Shall we start with the Anglo-Saxons? I'd prefer if we did. Yeah, they I'm need, they need to be taken care of. <laughs> first <laughs> yes i believe john those are probably our ancestors james is greek but oh you and me yeah we're probably of anglo-saxon stock am i wrong i would imagine the cooks you you look of it <laughs> the thompsons and the cooks yeah the future pope gregory the first was born into an aristocratic roman family in the year 540 much like james hmm. his family had strong ties to the church his great-great-grandfather had been pope felix the third Just two years after his birth, the Justinian Plague, the first emergence of Black Plague in Europe, swept through Rome and caused mass social unrest. (gasps) Yeah, it's terrible, right? Yeah, it's really bad. Whenever you hear the Black Plague, you gasp. (gasps) John, what's going on with you? I feel very unrested. (laughs) The the region was also war-torn with the Eastern Roman Empire fighting to reclaim Rome from the Italian Ostrogoths. So many different goths yeah. this time. Do you know your goths, James? Aren't those the weren't they the Lombards? Uh, Lombards are going into Italy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep, exactly right. Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Goths. Yeah, I yeah. think the Goths were the ones that sacked Rome at some point. The, One of the variations of Goths, Visigoths, yeah. I think. Yeah, the Visigoths. Oh, Visigoths. Oh, those goths. Gregory's family well, if you want goth memes of sacking of Rome, by all means check out our Discord. <laughs> <laughs> it's just full of that. Uh, Gregory's family wealth, or Robert Smith doing various things, Gregory's family wealth helped him to largely escape the strife. So he was kind of rich. So here come the barbarians and he packs up and uh, when the Goths are sacking and destroying, uh, he's on his way to Sicily. Uh, so, uh, that's the year's 546. He's probably at his family estates in Sicily. Uh, he has a deep respect though for monastic life, particularly the vow of poverty. Born rich, Gregory certainly must have had a somewhat skewed perception. Of poverty? (laughs) Yes. Like it seemed cooler probably than for people who were born into poverty. Uh, that having been said... As Pope, he responded to the scourges visited on Italy by famine, plague, and war by raiding the church's farmland and bringing food to the people, insisting that he not eat until all of the poor had been fed. The famines got so bad in his lifetime uh, that rich people were starving because all they had was money. They didn't have food. You can't eat the money. You cannot eat the money. Mm, Deep stuff. Uh, (sighs) Pope Pelagius II ordered the monk Gregory as a deacon, ordained the monk Gregory as a deacon, and then commissioned him to serve as an ambassador to Constantinople. And in the year 590, he became Pope. So there's your basic Gregory 101. Feeling good? Did he speak Greek? Oh, he was Roman. Well, he was an ambassador to Constantinople. Oh, yeah, it would have made sense. Yeah, he was. I'm sure he was multilingual, yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, he was a monk, too, so he would have probably read and spoken several languages. Oh, yeah, very very scholarly. Yeah, scholarly man. One of Gregory's... Well, that'll be one of the nicest things we say about him this day. Um, <laughs> one of Gregory's most consequential acts was to commission a crew of missionaries led by Augustine. Not to be confused with Augustine of Hippo, this is Augustine, future bishop of Canterbury. Very different guys. Hippo guy's been dead for like 
200 years. So he commissions this new Augustine, future Bishop of Canterbury, to travel to the British Isles to convert those Anglo-Saxons. Gregory understood Britain to be the furthest reaches of the world. <laughs> now, now, James. It was 590, 560 or whatever. Um, and which it, it, So it really was the furthest reaches of the world, for all he knew. Uh, he didn't know about, I don't know, Siberia or the South Pole or... Greenland. Amer- yeah, Greenland, <laughs> America. Uh, so, so he's like, we got to convert those Anglo-Saxons. They're living at the end of the universe. Um, so before becoming Pope, he'd met a group of angelic Anglo-Saxon boys who were being sold as slaves in the Roman Forum. And he said to himself, uh, I really urgently need to save these Anglo-Saxon souls because look at how, you know, cherubic these little Anglo-Saxon pagan dirty boys are. He thought they were cute. He thought they were cute. Yeah. And he's like, I gotta save them. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you just like see... a little puppy. Yeah, like those commercials. Okay. Sarah McLaughlin, insert here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're like cowering inside of tubes and cement and stuff. Anyway. Uh, did they have cement back then? <laughs> the giant cement tubes yeah, so. that they would cower inside of and there would be cages. And yes. And uh, Anglo-Saxon boys. Ang- and they were full of Anglo-Saxon boys. Feral Anglo-Saxon boys. Hmm. On, this is getting too close to <laughs> gross territory. On their journey through Gaul, the missionaries heard frightful tales of the British tribes and sent Augustine, uh, that is Augustine, future Bishop of Canterbury, back to Gregory asking if they could, uh, you know, skip this mission. So, Wait, where's Gaul? Is that like France? France, yeah. Okay. So they're like, they're, they're working their way up to England through like, France. Uh, yeah. And the French are like... Right. Those guys are hardcore. Yeah. And Augustine's like, uh, so can we just go home? <laughs> and Gregory's like, nope. So uh, he turns Augustine around, packs him with a bunch of letters and recommendations to the Bishop of Gaul and says, get back in there, champ. So the Romanized Celts had been converted to Christianity before the arrival of the Germanic Anglo-Saxons. So there already are some Christians kicking around the British Isles. But the invading tribes, the Anglo-Saxons, were all pagan. So the Christianization of the Anglo-Saxons was actually a battle fought on two fronts, and the barbarians were surrounded. Ireland, as I'm mentioning, had become the heart of monastic Celtic Christian culture, going back to the days when Britain was part of Constantine's Christian Roman Empire. Celtic Christians were far more inclined to monastic life than Roman Christians, and it was these monks who conducted many of the conversions among the Anglo-Saxons. When Augustine arrived on his mission from Pope Gregory, he had to contend with these Celtic monks who had their own way of practicing Christianity, which was often a lot more hardcore than the Romans were accustomed to. Let me tell you. You're going to love this. (laughs) Celtic monks confessed to evil acts as well as sinful thoughts to an anchara or soul friend so they were practicing an early form of confession right then they would do penance for their sins not as punishment but as medicine for their soul that sounds nice this included immersion in ice cold water oh that's nice standing still with arms raised i presume Mm. for a long period of time and peregrinatio pro deo, or exile in the name of God. Hmm. A monk would just drop everything and abandon the monastery and never come back. Self-imposed. Self-imposed. You just drop your hoe where you're standing and off you go. You shouldn't have been holding that hoe or you wouldn't have needed to do penance. <laughs> That's so interesting. But yeah. That Isn't is, it? That is strange. Like it's it's different, but like, oh, uh, what is that? I it's see like a that, how it could work. Like a sabbatical kind of thing. Except like a you're permanent never coming one? back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're out. You're never returning. Do they be? Do they become like hermits? In a, they become itinerant preachers. Okay. So yeah. so Augustine did not see these people as allies as Christians. He was kind of like they're a perversion of our Christianity. We need to make sure we 
convert these people, not I them. I think he was intimidated by them, yeah. Okay. And they're they're quite intimidating. Uh. They're super hardcore. It's like if I just ta- stopped teaching class in the middle of class one day and you just never heard from me again. Or if I just left this podcast right now. But it would be because of some kind of sinful act you've committed or something. Or yeah, I believe yeah. that I'm doing penance, yeah, yeah. in that okay. context. Peregrinatio pro deo. Okay. I'm not going to try and say it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so after they exiled themselves, they wandered Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England, preaching the gospel and winning converts. To John's point, Celtic monks were also more learned than their peers on the continent, perhaps because of a tradition of scholarship going back to the Druidic schools. So they studied more. So <laughs> there are stronger, better, harder core, and smarter then here come these weak little Ro- Roman missionaries yeah. who got scared by the Gauls and, and wanted to go back home. home. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Wow. Uh, so, who needs Augustine and friends? Pre-Christian Druids, by the way, may have spent up to 20 years in study. These aren't Christian guys, right? These are our pagans. These are the pagan forebears of these Celtic monks. Uh, probably c- carrying on their tradition, but now, you know, with a Christian uh, context. 20 years. They memorized an oral tradition that they forbid themselves to ever write down, which is why it took so long. Uh, they may have also practiced human sacrifice using large wooden effigies or wicker men. But reports of these sacrifices were made by, by Greco-Roman commentators and may have amounted to nothing more than propaganda. Nevertheless, they certainly inspired at least one movie. A wicker man? Yes. (laughs) Well, I guess it's two movies since it was remade. Okay. King Ethelbert of Kent wrote to Gregory to learn more about Christianity, likely inspired by his Frankish and Catholic wife, Bertha. When Augustine's mission arrived in Kent in 597, Ethelbert received uh, the embassy and listened to Augustine's sermon, and he promised the monks shelter and protection at Canterbury, where a residence was assigned to them. Ethelbert was then baptized on the 2nd of June, 597, and Christianity spread from there. The king allowed them, the missionaries that is, the freedom to preach and to use the old Roman churches, namely St. Martin's. Augustine reported that 10,000 converts had been baptized on the missionaries' first Christmas day, but this number was likely exaggerated and just kind of meant a whole lot. Yeah. Because they weren't counting. How you count to 10,000? Uh, they don't have enough fingers for that. Right? Augustine was made a bishop and given authority over all future English bishops. So there he is. Now he's finally Canterbury Bishop. The rise of the barbarians who laid waste to the Roman Empire, dropping Gregory into a world beset by chaos, convinced Pope Gregory that the world was in its old age and probably in its last days. He believed that the end of time and the final judgment would not be far off, and it was important that Gregory's converts maintain their faith against the temptation to backsliding. So as he's winning these converts, he's constantly obsessed with the idea that they could backslide into their old, dirty, pagan ways. Mm, So it's about maintenance as well. Gotta maintain. Mm -hmm. In June 601, Gregory wrote to Ethelbert to encourage him to prepare for the apocalypse. He begged the king to promote Christianity in every way possible among his people and to destroy idolatrous cults and pagan temples. The letter's urgency suggests that while Ethelbert may have converted, he was reluctant to impose his new beliefs on his people, and at least some of these people continued to practice the old ways. They're paying him taxes, and they're pagans, and if you destroy their their art and their culture, they're not going to be too happy about that. They're not going to be thrilled with it, so just converting them to Christianity through the destruction of stuff is not going to be a popular choice. No. But if you're Pope Gregory and you believe Jesus is coming tomorrow and is going to, you know, smack some people around if they're pagan, you are desperate to get these people into the fold as quickly as possible. So there's the rub. Hmm. And and it's definitely, I mean, we're interpreting these letters, but, you know, I wouldn't write a a letter to James as a tutor and say, uh, you know, you really need to be working on these theater students if my theater students weren't doing poorly in my class. You know, we can infer from the letter that these guys are not not towing the Christian line. But to your point about um, them not liking if they're going to destroy their culture, that's kind of how most large empires back in the day were able to keep everybody kind of happy. Was as long as as long as you pay us a little bit and like supply us with some troops, you guys keep doing what you're doing. 
But as soon as they start like messing with their culture and religion and imposing things, that's when like the revolt started to happen. Yeah. Like the Vikings, when they wiped out all the Vikings in uh, Great Britain and Scotland, then the Vikings from Norway came in and just tore them up because they're like, why'd you do that? We were fine. (laughs) If you were Mongolian, you often didn't convert people. They were so successful and spread so far because they just let people, they didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. Just pay us a little bit and you're fine. Yep. They were just like, people be different. It's okay. They sounded Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Attributed Genghis Khan. That's James's Genghis Khan impression. He's been working on it. (laughs) Okay, so uh, resistance to Christianity may have prompted Gregory's change in attitude, reflected in a letter to Augustine the following month. The shrines of idols in that land should not be destroyed, but rather. The idols that are in them should be. Let holy water be prepared and sprinkled in these shrines, and altars constructed, and relics deposed. Because as long as these shrines are well built, it is necessary that they should be transformed from the cult of demons to the service of the true God. For when the people themselves see that these shrines were not destroyed, they will lay aside the error of their heart, and knowing and adoring the true God... They will flock with more familiarity to the places to which they are accustomed. Gregory also proposed that the pagan custom of ritual slaughter. Gregory also proposed that the pagan custom of ritual slaughter and feasting be retained as part of Christian festivities. So you just take the pagan thing, Christianize it. So he's softening. He's compromising. For feasting and slaughtering. Feasting and slaughtering. What did that turn into then? You're not going to slaughter people. You just right. say, you know, like... You a have, feast day kind of, right? Yeah. You have yeah. Your, your lamb at Easter. Or yeah. Whatever, that okay. kind of thing. Okay, <laughs> cool. James yeah. is loving it. Now he's all about slaughter. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Easter, you know? You get a lamb. You yeah. know? Slaughter something delicious. Slaughter, okay. slaughter something delicious. Like a carrot. Gregory's plan was to... Vegetarian. Gregory's plan was to appropriate pagan ritual, appropriate pagan ritual into the service of Christian worship. The Anglo-Saxons had a habit of visiting these sacred sites, which the church could take advantage of. Rather than uproot their entire system of worship, as my guys are saying, that's not going to go so well, Gregory decided it would be better to just sneak the Christian god into their pagan worship. To think about the way Easter is celebrated with, uh, you know, rabbits and eggs, powerful symbols of fertility that lend themselves to springtime ritual... Or Christmas with indoor foliage and a great big feast. Hmm. These are the these are the pagan things that yeah. transferred over. Okay. I mean, right. they have yeah. nothing to do with Jesus. Are you uh, meaning to tell me that Jesus was not born on December twenty fifth? Are you trying to tell me that rabbits don't lay eggs? No, no, no. I no, you guys. <laughs> oh, so he was. Okay, cool. He okay, was. Cool, cool, he cool, was cool, born cool, under cool. a big yeah. pine tree in the desert. <laughs> Is that sarcasm? He got presents. As a rabbit gave birth to chickens yeah. directly next to him. Actually, mm. that was happening at the Passion. Uh, so, I mean, just right. think about the Passion of the Christ. Think about Christmas, the birth of a poor child in a desert. And this is how we celebrate. We get like stuffed full of food, give each other a bunch of crap. And put trees in all the buildings. Gregory, what? Outside's inside now. Outside's inside. That's what Jesus said when he was born. Um, (laughs) Gregory understood humanity to be blind, cold, and lost since the fall of Adam, drawn to materialism and false gods and religions with humility. Humans who subject themselves to God's divine will and grace can learn to live righteously and to channel God's higher purposes to their fellow human beings. Gregory's vision of history was one of the species' gradual movement closer to God. The three stages of our collective spiritual development were paganism, then Judaism, and finally, say it with me, Christianity. Christianity. Good pronunciation. (laughs) Societies and individuals move through a similar progression. Individuals begin concerned with sensual things, food, sex, comfort, move toward a more contemplative life as they age. Then we get to be Jews and Christians. Like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I suppose, (laughs) yeah. A little bit. A gradual progression is important to this progress. Change is incremental, and it's often difficult to tell exactly where a person is on their spiritual path. Or at least so says Gregory the Great. 
Now the preacher should not realize that he must not overtax the mind of the hearer, lest, so to speak, the string of the soul be strained too much and snap. Wherefore Paul says, I could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. As unto little ones in Christ, I give you milk to drink, not meat. So the true preacher proclaims aloud plain truths to hearts still in the dark, showing them no hidden mysteries. Then only are they to learn all the profounder things of heaven when they approach the light of truth. That's what I had to say about the Anglo-Saxons. Are you ready for the the Visigoths? <laughs> Let's get them rap. <laughs> <laughs> the mission to the Anglo-Saxons was only one of many attempts to bring Europe's bar- barbarians into the Christian fold. In some cases, these roving and conquering hordes already believed in some version of Christianity, but still needed to be brought that last full mile into Catholic Christianity. In the 5th century, the Visigoths invaded and conquered Spain. The Visigoths were a heretical variant of Christian called Arian. Mm. That's A-R-I-A-N. I believe I've heard of these before i think we started them in school they had an issue with the trinity i believe that they focused more on just god and that god created jesus and so he's just like a product of god they put god first yeah god first arians believe that god the father came before jesus the son in contrast to the doctrine of the trinity as james is saying that the son and father are co-eternal that jesus always was as was god this may seem like a small matter to quibble over but it became a major issue for the Visigoth kings in the 6th century. Here we go. Here's where it gets fun. Ooh, buddy. That was just theories. Now, stuff that happens. Mm. Leander, the Catholic bishop of Seville, had succeeded in converting the Arian king Levigild's son, Hermenegild, to Catholicism. It's just, it's old names. Yeah, old names are hilarious. (laughs) My son's name is Hermenarab. Hermenarab. <laughs> His teachers will have no problem pronouncing that. Uh, Her- Hermenegild had staged a revolt against Daddy, probably for political rather than religious reasons, uh, which my son actually tries every day, but he's he's very tiny, so <laughs> one day he'll succeed. One day, Hermenarab. <laughs> John, John's already rooting for you, Hermenarab. Same. Uh... <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so he wasn't so much motivated uh, to quit his father's church as he was to sort of rub salt in the wound because he was already trying to screw dad over. So just converting to to the Catholic Christians was a way of making it a little bit worse. (laughs) So King Levigild, not messing around, had his son imprisoned because he wasn't too keen on being revolted against and probably should have established more boundaries for little Hermenegild years earlier. So he did the equivalent of grounding his grown son, and while Hermenegild... Throwing him in jail. Right. While Hermenegild was sitting in the corner thinking about what he'd done and writing, I will not revolt against my daddy a few times over, the king sent him an Arian bishop at Easter. Ooh, because he's Catholic. So he was like, nah, right. I'm getting my Aryan bishop. <laughs> Hermenegild, who was nothing if not pouty. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> he was Catholic the way teenagers were punk in the 80s, uh, <laughs> pissing off his old man, would not accept the Eucharist from daddy's priest. So, the king ordered him beheaded. Oh, that took a dark turn. And Hermenegild was executed on the 13th of April, 585. Wow. That's... Wow. So he died a martyr, essentially. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I had to think about that for a second. Is he a saint now? I would imagine he must be Saint Hermenegild. We'll have to look that up. (laughs) (laughs) The Uh, the, the punk Catholic. (laughs) The world needs more, like, angsty teenage Catholics. Right? (laughs) I think well, we have yeah. them, don't we? Yeah, we have them somewhere. <laughs> Riley was kind of that way. So uh, mm. Riley still is kind of that way. Hey, Riley. Hey, Riley. Uh, so <laughs> What to do? <laughs> so uh, what am I saying? Uh, none of this made any difference as far as keeping the Visigoths Aryan because 
Levigild died the following year and was succeeded by his son, younger son, Rickered, who announced Arianism, uh, renounced Arianism and converted to Catholic Christianity in 587. <laughs> Got him. Ultimately, yeah. Uh. Always look out for that younger kid. The end of Arianism among the Visigoths was certainly a success for Gregory, but it made no impact on paganism since... None of these people were pagan. <laughs> right, the Arian, yeah, the Arianisms, they were still Christian were still people. Christian. Yeah. So it is a win for Gregory because he's the Pope of Catholic Christianity, mm. yeah, but not is really there a Pope a, of Arianism. I no, I don't think they had a Pope, yeah. but I mean they certainly had central authorities and stuff. People, the kings, yeah, the Arian kings, yeah. Like their former rival Constantine, familial imprisonment and homicide were acceptable to the Christian Visigoths. <laughs> so ends the Visigoths. Onto the Lombards. James's favorite, I think. I got them confused with the Lollards when you said that the first time. Oh, no. <laughs> they're, they're, the Lollards are like five, six, many years in the future and very different. Uh, so in 586, the Lombards arrived in northern Italy, where they would rule until 774. The Lombards worshipped the Vanir and then the Acer, the two groups of Norse gods. The Aesir were the more familiar set ruled by Odin, but the Vanir included Freya, who the Lombards are reported to have given special worship to. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Props for Freya. Yeah. The Lombard aristocracy converted to various forms of Christianity as, made, as they made their way toward the conquest of Italy. But the Lombard peasantry remained pagan. Efforts at conversion went both ways in Lombard Italy. While we tend to think of conversion as a thing the Christians did to the pagans, in the case of the Lombards, they actually worked to convert their Christian subjects to paganism. The Catholic Italians resisted Lombard attempts to impose their religion on them. Forty peasants declined to eat meat offered by the Lombards to their gods, regarding it as impure sacrifices to a dirty pagan idol. And 400 imprisoned peasants refused to perform a pagan rite imposed by their jailers. More to the point, the Lombard king, Authori, forbade Lombards from being baptized as Catholics. Hmm. So they're working hard against their Christianity there. Oh, yeah. But Authori, or Authori whatever, brought Catholicism into the family when he married the Bavarian princess Theodolinda in Verona in 589. Sounds like mm. a nice wedding, doesn't it? Uh, it depends. Uh, what kind, Was it a Catholic wedding? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that the woman often gets to decide, so I'm going to guess it was mixed in there. Okay. Yeah. Theodolinda was a Frankish Catholic. Although he converted to Christianity, Authori died in 590, so it does sound like it was probably, I was right, it was a Catholic wedding. Cool. Uh, he was possibly poisoned, possibly by his wife, Theodolinda. <laughs> maybe it wasn't. Maybe she was really mad about not getting the wedding she wanted. Ooh. Um, I only say possibly by his wife because she profited substantially by his death. Oh, yeah. She's on the list of suspects for sure. Mm-hmm. Either because she was popular among the people or was a ruthless political actor. It's difficult to tell because it was 590 and records are super sketchy. Theodolinda arranged so that she would remain queen and select Authori's replacement herself. A highly unusual situation. Yeah, a Catholic Frankish queen of the Lombards who are like Norse. Yep. And she's picking, she's staying queen and whoever she marries gets to be king. <sighs> yeah. But it's kind of like she's in charge as queen, right? It's like kind of a regent. Yeah. In a way, yeah. She oh, gets to sure. remarry as a Catholic? Well, he's dead. dead oh, dead, that's dead. right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they don't. She doesn't. She didn't tell anybody she killed him. We don't know if she killed him. I'm. I, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? Maybe she, this is just Queen Elizabeth. Get in the comments. In the, the year five ninety. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she's immortal. <laughs> Queen. Oh, she's re reincarnated. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> so, uh, she chose Ag Agilolf, Duke of Turin. Yeah, he's hot. Yeah, he was the he was the George Clooney of his day. Agalolf was baptized to... A, I need to stop talking about George Clooney. I need to come up with a more hip reference for the kids. Give me Tom a, Hanks. <laughs> that's not, Tom Hanks isn't hip, but he is a good choice. Uh, <laughs> James, give me something hip. Give me a hip guy. Donald Glover. Okay, Donald Glover of his day. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so John will go older than what I, who I pick, and James will go younger. Yeah. Agalulf was uh, baptized to appease his new wife, Queen Theodolinda, but he apparently didn't want to appease her too much because he was baptized 
Arian. What? Ooh. I thought she could pick. <laughs> no. oh, she, she wanted an Arian? She picked the man. She, but... pick, she was, yeah, she, I think she was, uh, you know, uh, what you call it? Sub, like, I don't know. Hypnotized by that penis. Something. She was, uh, yeah. Dicknotized. She, yeah. she, she got, wasn't thinking. Uh, she wasn't thinking with her head. Yeah, she yeah. was thinking with the other head. The other parts. Oh. What? Other parts. <laughs> Anyway, in 603, he, he converted to Christian Arianism, from Christian Arianism to Catholic Christianity. So eventually he came around probably okay. because, you know, she poisons people or she knows people who poison people. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then they had a son, uh, Adolawald, uh, who they baptized Catholic. Uh, and he struck a truce with Pope Gregory, ending 30 years of Lombard assaults on Rome. The Catholic queen not only ruled beside two separate Lombard kings, but also as regent of Lombards during the minority of her son, Adolawald. While Athore and Agalulf had mixed feelings about Rome's Catholics, Theodolinda was in regular contact with Pope Gregory. It was Theodolinda who welcomed Catholic missionaries into her realm to roam the countryside and win converts. As thanks, Gregory sent her a series of silver umpulas of Syrio-Palestinian craftsmanship, also a gospel casket and a gem-encrusted golden cross symbolizing the impending kingdom of God. Sounds expensive. You mentioned something about the minority of her son? Yeah, when he was a little guy. Oh, okay, during his youth kind of thing. Yeah, she okay. things. I wasn't sure what that term meant. So the, the, the Lombard people are now starting to be converted Mm-hmm. How is that going? I'd it imagine goes well, that's it does. It. Okay, cool. Because their leaders are Catholic, and it's like, oh, well, these these align. This is the story. Okay. So ends Lombard pagan Arianism. I wonder if they fully converted or just did the thing that Gregory did. They did, and I mean, just Gre- kind of like switched it out a little bit. He's the Pope. He's the one sending these gifts. So it's all happening in more or less the same fashion throughout Christian uh, Europe. Yeah, he's hustling. He's hustling. He's just trying to get the job done. He really is, though. He's making tracks. Whatever it takes. The Franks? Shall we go to the Franks? Yeah. uh, Can we skip the Franks? No, we got to go to the Franks. Okay, let's go to the Franks. In fact, this is going to be our last story today. Oh, okay. We're going to close today with the Franks, which is a bit backward because they were actually the first of Europe's barbarian tribes to convert to Christianity. The Franks were led by King Clovis, who conquered most of southern Gaul in the 5th century. John knows Clovis. She's nodding appreciatively. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Clovis. Clovis is considered the first king of France because he succeeded in pulling the various tribes of Franks together into one kingdom. Clovis was born pagan, but was interested in Aryan Christianity. Many of the Goths and Gauls were Aryan Christians, but Clovis had married the Catholic Burgundian princess Clotilda. And Clotilda pressed him to be baptized Catholic. How and why Clovis converted is a kind of a mystery. Clotilda wanted to baptize their first son, but Clovis refused, so she did it in secret. And her son died shortly afterwards. What's up with people killing their babies? Well, she didn't kill him. He, he caught a cold after being baptized. Babies be dying back uh... then. I don't, I don't know that he caught a cold, but he did die shortly afterwards. But you, should, you wouldn't want Clovis to find out because he would just assume that, you know, because he turned on his God and baptized mm. the wrong way. Right. Yeah. So that's a secret between us. Okay. I won't tell anybody <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast. You won't, you won't tell any of these people listening. She wanted to baptize their second son Catholic, much like the first, and Clovis allowed it this time because he didn't know about the last time. But the boy became ill and nearly died afterwards. But didn't. Did not die. Cool. Around the turn of the 5th century, Clovis led the Franks against the Alemanni at the Battle of Tolbiac and converted to Catholicism on Christmas Day 508. In the history of the Franks, the Catholic Gregory of Tours described Clovis's baptism this way. The queen did not cease to urge him to recognize the true God and cease worshipping idols, but he could not be influenced in any way to this belief, until at last a war arose with the Alemanni, in which he was driven by necessity to confess what before he had of his free will denied. It came about that as the two armies were fighting fiercely, there was much slaughter, and Clovis's army began to be in danger of destruction. He saw it, and raised his eyes to heaven, and with remorse in his heart he burst into tears and cried, 
Jesus Christ, whom Clotilda asserts to be the Son of the living God, who art said to give aid to those in distress and to bestow victory on those who hope in thee, I beseech the glory of thy aid, with the vow that if thou wilt grant me victory over these enemies, and I shall know that power which she says that people dedicated in thy name have had from thee. I believe in thee, and be baptized in thy name, for I have invoked my own gods, but, as I find, they have withdrawn from aiding me, and therefore I believe that they possess no power, since they do not help those who obey them. Now I call upon thee. I desire, I desire to believe thee, only let me be rescued from my adversaries. And when he said thus, the Alamani turned their backs and began to disperse in flight. And when they saw that their king was killed, they submitted to the dominion of Clovis, saying, Let not the people perish further. We pray. We are yours now. And he stopped the fighting. And after encouraging his men, retired in peace and told the queen how he had merit to win the victory by calling on the name of Christ. This happened on the fifteenth year of his reign. The- Is this the the um, the king that converted? Because I heard a story about a, uh, a pagan barbarian king who converted in the middle of a battle because he was losing the battle and asked for a sign, ended up seeing a cross in the sky, mm-hmm. and they won the battle. I think you're thinking of Constantine. Is that, mm-hmm. is that right? Constantine didn't see a cross in the sky, but he did before the battle. And he put crosses on all of his people's... Well, he's, the legend is he put crosses, but he actually put the letters, the Greek letters CH and R on their tombs. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, the Catholic God's so scary. <laughs> Run away. Yeah, they didn't see him. They just heard him talking about right. it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no! Yeah. Not and the it, God. <laughs> <laughs> then the queen asked Saint-Rémy, Bishop of Rheim, to summon Clovis secretly. I don't know how to... I guess Clovis probably would... If it were doing a French pronunciation. Clovis. Was it, was it French back then? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they would have pronounced... What old French would have sounded like. I just made one up. Just Gaulish. Ga- Gaulish, yeah. Would have sounded like Gaulish. We'll stick with Clovis. Clovis. Anyway. So the queen summons Clo- uh, asks the bishop to summon Clovis secretly uh, and urges the bishop to introduce the king to the word of salvation. And the bishop sent for him secretly and began to urge him to believe in the true God, maker of heaven and earth, and to cease worshiping idols, which could help neither themselves nor anyone else. There's, there's just statues, he says. You're just worshiping a bunch of statues. But the king said, I gladly hear you, most holy father, but there remains one thing. The people who follow me cannot endure to abandon their gods, but I shall go and speak to them according to your words. He met with his followers, but before he could speak, the power of God anticipated him, and all of the people cried out together, O pious king, we reject our mortal gods, and we are ready to follow the immortal God whom Remy preaches. This was reported to the bishop, who was greatly rejoiced, who greatly rejoiced and uh, bade them get ready for the baptismal font. So he comes back and he's like, they're like, oh, did you do it? Did you convert them? And he's like, yeah, they're all, they're all ready. I didn't what'd even you, have to. What'd you say to them? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They all just said it at once. <laughs> yeah. They were just like on board. God did it. I, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Despite reports of the pagan Franks crying out that they desired to abandon their mortal gods, in truth... They continued to be powerfully influenced by their pagan faith. Catholic saints had come to fill in for their pagan idols in ways not unlike the syncretic traditions practiced in places like Haiti, Cuba, and Mexico. Serenus, Bishop of Marseille, wrote to Pope Gregory concerned that the Franks were worshipping the images of saints as idols rather than using them as examples for their own faith. Serenus had started to go into the church and break up these images, but Gregory wrote back saying that these images of the lives of the saints were important tools for instruction for the illiterate believers. In separate correspondence with Queen Brunhilde of the Franks, Gregory warned that pagan rites should be discouraged wherever possible. So he's sort of cutting both ways. Discourage their rites, but yeah, all right, let them worship the saints if they've got to. They can idolize them. Don't go too far. We're going to lose them. 
In this way, uh, Gregory showed the consistency of his mission. Images and beliefs that proved popular and held the possibility for instruction should be maintained even if they allowed some paganism to bleed over into Christian practice. He drew the line at straight pagan worship, but that line got fuzzier the more Christianity overlapped with the natives' paganism. Just a quick Rob's take on this. In my opinion, Gregory's fuzzy approach typified the kind of Christianity that would persist through the whole history of Catholic Europe, with paganism always peeking out from under the cover of Catholic rites in the form of Easter bunnies, Christmas trees, Valentines, not to mention purely pagan beliefs in spirits delivering gifts from the dead. Uh, (laughs) You got gifts from the dead? No. Uh, Not to mention the purely pagan beliefs in spirits delivering gifts in the dead of winter. Yep. Uh, Elves, for example, dropping off gifts in wintertime. The evil eye drying up young mother's breast milk and charms warding off bad fortune. I like charms, though. I I like charms, too. But they're pagan. Aw. Yeah, I mean, I see I see girls come to class wearing uh, the evil eye to ward off, ward off the evil eye, and they're huh. good good Christian girls. Uh, we we just live in this overlap, but we always have. I I can't pick on them because it's just how it's always been. It's how their great 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 grandmothers would have done it. And do you think that this is uh, because Gregory just so like hastily painted over? The, the, the paganism do you think that if it happened naturally it would be different yeah i mean longer what's, over time what's interesting about gregory is that he was a very he was a very much like the apostles they believed and you know the immediate martyrs after them that first hundred so years of christianity that christ was coming back tomorrow that the end days were upon us that this was it jesus died rose and was coming back like next week and every week they anticipated this Gregory was a true Christian in that he lived day to day expecting, like every day he woke up and looked out the window and said, nope, the end times aren't here yet. But maybe tomorrow, every day. Jesus? Nope. You there? (laughs) Nope, nope, tomorrow. It'll be tomorrow. It's definitely tomorrow. Uh, So he was desperate to do this as quickly as possible. And I do think, James, he cut corners and that cutting of corners remains with us today. But I don't know if he had an option. The alternative would have been to purge out paganism completely, which is, as John is suggesting, would have been extremely difficult from the top down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And bloody. And bloody. And beyond that, even if you try, I mean, well, we'll get into the witch hunts later in this series. There are beliefs and there are practices that persist even in the face of persecution. In fact, sometimes because of persecution, we cling tighter to these things. Uh, So it just never works. We can't legislate. We can't violate violence out belief do you think that the black plague had anything to do with i mean of course i mean we're coming out of it oh yeah and it was horrific he was living in horrific times i mean the lombards uh, are killing his relatives and the ones that they don't kill die of the plague he's living in horrific times so it looks like the end times yeah it's time to convert i mean we could say that about right now if we wanted to Eh. I'm sure there's a lot of points in history where if you look at it, you can construe the end times are here. Yeah. I mean, there's scholars that make arguments about revelation and all these sorts of things that, you know, if we want to interpret an Armageddon into our day, we almost always can. I don't want to. So don't. But <laughs> I mean, you know, we've got COVID and, and the war and all these sorts of things. So yeah. we could imagine climate change. We could imagine that we're in the end times and Gregory chose to. So right. there it was for him. But people were dying to his credit, so there was evidence. People are dying now. Here or there. Uh, I want to close with a question for our confessors. Despite how Christian Europe became, were Europeans ever fully converted to Catholic Christianity? Thoughts, gentlemen? You mean like pure Catholicism? Or like kind of like a full conversion to Roman Catholicism? I don't know. There's a lot of splinters. A lot of splinters. Mm-hmm. I would say that after the great, um, what does they call it? The, the great divide? No, no, no. no. With the, the Eastern Orthodox? Yeah, yeah the, the Eastern Orthodox. James loved to talk about the great those, schism. those Orthodox. Yeah. yeah, I feel like after that, it's just diluted and diluted and diluted. Mm-hmm. And even then you had the Protestants. 
Oh yeah, it's going to get more broken up, and then here comes mm-hmm. Joseph Smith. And you have Lutherans and Methodists and oh, Seventh Day yeah. Adventists. It never ends. Yeah. Why don't we call them barbarians? I've heard. I've I've heard an explanation. I think you've said this theory, but put this theory out there on the, and we'll see what people respond to. I, I, you may have said this before, but go ahead. I've heard that the Germanic tribes, their language at the time sounded to the Romans like. Bar, 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 bar. I love this. So, <laughs> so they call them bar, bar, like barbarians, but like yeah, the, because they make that sound barbar. Yeah, it makes sense. It's possible. <laughs> I, I wonder if the word barbary came before or after barbarians. Hmm. Fun etymology questions. Yeah, etymology is always uh, part of <laughs> part of the study. So I would, I, would pre- I preferably would like James's explanation to be right. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I think it makes it's, history more fun. It is cool, and it very well could be because we like to mock our enemies, mm-hmm. and to, especially if we think they're less human than us, we find ways to do this. So, I uh, yeah, I think about the ways people mock the way you know Chinese speak or or Japanese, which is largely a product of World War II with the Japanese. Mm-hmm um bar bar it makes it makes sense so write in if you have uh, thoughts or history or opinions on this i certainly do not know the answer to this uh but get into comments which came first barbary or barbarian and is james right it's that time again is james right <laughs> it's, it's to, time play. to play is james right <laughs> Our sources today included Christina Ricci. No, not that Christina Ricci. Gregory's Missions to the Barbarians in a Companion to Gregory the Great. Miriam Aiden Jones. So that Christina Ricci. Mm. Miriam Aiden Jones' Conversion as Convergence. Gregory the Great's Confronting Pagan and Jewish Influences in Anglo-Saxon Christianity. That is in Pagans and Christians in the Late Roman Empire. And Claude Evans' The Celtic Church in Anglo-Saxon Times in the Anglo-Saxons, colon, Synthesis and Achievement. I always encourage you, if you would like to know more about this topic, to go ahead and take a look. These sources in particular are compilations of essays. Uh, So those are the essays that we drew on most. I uh, do often use other sources, but I like to cite our top sources. Uh, So check them out. James, John, can you bring us home? Occult Confessions. (laughs) James never really can do this. I hereby adjourn adjourn. adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until until such a time time as we get get together together and and do do it again. again. It almost became competitive, I think, at the end there. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm I'm super (laughs) anxious right now. (laughs) Maybe that's what you're hearing. (laughs) Why don't you put in the comments who you think won? I think it was John. (laughs) Is James right? Did John win? (laughs) So then you could both find out win. next yeah, time we, on a cult confession. <laughs> so never find out. Uh, so uh, I want to thank our voice actors, Brandon Walls, Silver Tongue Shadow, Andrew Mims, whose name is not to be spoken on this podcast. Aww. His title, that is. This is a secret. Uh, it's a cult. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, joined by James Kaplanges, captain of the table. It's been good, listeners. And our patron progenitor, John Cook. Uh, goodbye. Bye-bye. Today, uh, we covered those barbarians, and in the next round of our uh, exploration of persecution out there in the wide world of Europe, it will be the Baltic Crusades. We are heading for Lithuania and Livonia and uh, such countries where people clung to paganism so hardcore that the Pope had to send knights to try to pry it from their cold, dead hands. Sounds like a bad idea. So, next time on A Call of Confessions, the Baltic Crusades. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.